Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everybody, welcome back to the 38th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of the financial markets and financial planning from the past week. Uh, so good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Uh, so as everyone is well aware, it has been an eventful uh, last three weeks, I think that everyone can say in terms of financial markets and uh, just life in general right now. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that this podcast today just kind of gives people a different perspective on, say, the financial side of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's it'll what, be helpful for people. Yeah, that's what we're here for. So back to our normal schedule, we will run through uh, the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on March 18th. Uh, the data is from stockcharts.com. S&P 500 index is down 18.82% for the month and down 25.77% for the year. The Dow down 21.69% for the month and down 30.27% for the year. The NASDAQ down 18.41% for the month and down 22.10% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index uh, for the month is down 31.68% and for the year is down 39.66%. The International Index X United States is down 24.87% for the month and down 33.04% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.02%, and that briefly yesterday uh, I saw, I think, dipped negative for a second, but then popped right back into positive territory. The two-year Treasury yielding 0.54%, and the 10-year Treasury yielding 1.18%. I know there's a time there that 10-year uh, mark was actually under 1% there for a little bit. Yeah, which is crazy to believe. Yep. Um, so the Fed uh, cut rates um, Sunday night in emergency fashion to 0% to 0.25% and added additional liquidity to the financial system. And then just for listeners again, Matt, can you just explain what this means for people? Yeah, Mark. So in plain English, what the Fed did this past Sunday is they lowered the interest rates at which banks can borrow money from them at. Okay, so they dropped that all the way between a range of zero to uh, zero point two five. Okay, the second thing that they're going to do is uh, they're printing money, and they're going to go out there and they're going to be buying, creating demand for various types of bonds, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and what they want to do is they want to provide liquidity for those who want to sell making sure they get a good price. And secondly, they want to do it to push those rates down. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. Um, and then as everyone knows, states, individual states have been taking action to slow the spread of the virus, closing restaurants, bars, public places like gyms and other gathering locations. 
Um, and then it looks like, Matt, that we're getting some more clarification on the stimulus package from uh, Washington. And it looks like that taxpayers owing $1 million or less can delay their payments for 2019 for 90 days. So that would push the normal April 15th deadline back to July 15th. Um, it doesn't sound like taxpayers have to do anything special other than just filing their tax return and then the relief would automatically be applied. That's what I'm seeing as well. Yeah, yeah. So we do not yet know if this relief um, will push back the tax filing deadline, but um, we have to assume for now that it doesn't. Yeah, right? I would assume right now you still have to file by April 15th, but if you owe... You don't have to pay it till July 15th. Yeah. Yeah. And then to be clear, this is what we know as of now from the federal level. This has not been clarified from a state level yet. So correct. Um, I would assume as to well. operate as normal to pay your state income taxes and local if you and, have that. and local. Yeah. Um, next, there's been bipartisan support for sending checks directly to Americans during this time. And the most recent number uh, we have heard is two rounds. So two rounds of payments, one in April and one in May. Uh, as of this morning, Matt and I are hearing uh, $1,000 each time to each adult in a household and then $500 per child, yeah. um, which I'm assuming is those under the age of 18. I, I'm assuming so, yes. So that's what we know as of now. And I know that, um, you know, People in Washington are working on this right now, but uh, we have heard rumblings that these payments are trying to be sent out uh, in early April and then again in May sometime. So with all of that being said, Matt, any comments on that before you move on to some of the points you want to make here? Um, no, because I'm going to move on to some of my points because I will come back to this in a second. Okay. Okay. So what I'd like to talk about, Mark, uh, with listeners is just to help give them some perspective as to what I'm seeing in the market environment, what's causing some of this volatility, and what I think the end game is. Okay. Okay. So, you know, for listeners, turn the volume up. I want you guys to focus and kind of absorb what I'm about to go over. And don't mind Louie chewing his bone here in the uh, in the background. <laughs> Louie is living his best life, which yeah. is which is my It'd be pop. nice to be a dog right now. It dogs, would be perfect. Yeah, I, I've heard that uh, from my fiance that dogs cannot um, get the coronavirus. I've heard that which as well. I think is a good bright spot in humanity because I think we would all be a little more sad if that was the case. So yeah, glad that our furry friends are immune to it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> So the, uh, the first topic I want to cover, Mark, with listeners is what I would call price discovery, okay? So um, anytime you have a market, and I'm going to say that um, it's going to be houses in 2008, when you have a major disruption to supply and demand, where you have a lot of sellers, but very, very few buyers, what happened to housing prices in 08 and 09? they really, really went down mm -hmm. because the buyers, which were very limited, knew that there were desperate sellers. So they just kept lowering what they were willing to pay. Now, I want you to fast forward, Mark, that mindset to what you've seen the past couple of weeks. And what listeners have to remember, especially in the stock and bond market, is you got to match up a seller with a buyer. Okay. Now, this plays out in very, very quick fashion in the electronic trading world that we have today. What you've really seen 
is the number of buyers has decreased with uncertainty. And those buyers are very smart and they're not willing to pay what they perceive to be high prices given some of the panic selling you're seeing in the marketplace. So what I wanna tell uh, listeners is that this volatility you're seeing from day to day is just a lack of buyers in the market. And I really think a lot of these prices are unrealistic when your time horizon changes from the next hour or the next day to the next month to the next quarter. So a prime example of the craziness that we're seeing in price discovery is going to be yesterday. So um, listeners, yesterday was um, March 18th, March 18th, going into the market close. um, Listeners, Mark and I were noticing a lot of price dislocations in the marketplace. And the one that I want to give an example to is Sherwin Williams. So Sherwin Williams, um, large size company, um, liquid stock, um, underlying business, um, you know, probably pretty good right now. And into the close, the stock went uh, from being down over 20% with 90 minutes left in trading and ended up only closing down 6%. Just to quantify these types of moves in this short a period of time, the person who sold that stock 90 minutes before the close knew nothing different than the person who bought it right at the close. Right. It's just that you're looking at the price flow, you're looking at money flow, you're looking at headlines that people are making um, rumored uh, buys or sales based upon what they're seeing. And this to me is reminiscent of aspects of 08 and 09, but to me, it's more like 9-11. So the next point I wanna make to listeners is, what makes it different in my mind is 08 and 09, our financial system had major structural issues, okay? This time around, I don't see the structural issues because the Fed is taking care of those. The Fed is doing the best it can to provide liquidity. Now, you're seeing the lack of liquidity in the stock market cause a lot of downside volatility. I think that's gonna work its way out. And just as I said in the podcast several weeks ago, these large up days followed by these large down days, for me, is signs of the market bottoming and you're seeing price discovery. And I think the market environment will look completely different several weeks out, okay? The other thing I wanna throw out there, just from a compliance perspective is, we're not recommending Sherwin-Williams either way. We are just using that as an example to the price movement in that name. Yeah. Just wanna throw that out there. Yeah, and I think to add to that too, Matt, I think what you know I want a lot of people to understand is that you know, individual investors, um, and I, I mean, even classify us into that right now, we're not the ones or people that have Vanguard accounts or Fidelity accounts, they're not the one that's moving these prices, right? This is big institutional money that has billions and trillions of dollars out there that are moving these prices. And if these large institutions have clients that want to get their money back, 
Those hedge funds and institutional investors, regardless of whether they like it or not, have to redeem their clients' money. And whether they really like Apple or not, if they have a large position in Apple, they need to begin to unwind it to give investors their money back. Now, the people on the other side of that trade who are buying, like you mentioned, are going to say, hey, I'm not going to buy Apple until you sell it to me at X price. So hedge funds and institutions really don't have a choice but to sell at these absurd prices. And I think that's what's adding to the price dislocations that you were talking about earlier. There is. And Mark, I'd like to take it even further and talk about a lot of these hedge funds and institutions. What you see is when volatility goes up, the custodians that these institutions use to hold their money and to trade through, and let's just pick some of the big boys out there, Fidelity, Schwab, right? TD Ameritrade. What they do is a lot of these hedge funds and institutions use margin, meaning they borrow against what they own in their account to buy more stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And what happens when volatility comes along is these custodians like Fidelity and Schwab will say, you need to have more collateral with us. We're not going to let you borrow as much. Well, a lot of these institutions are having redemptions, so they don't have more money to put up. So what does the margin desk do? They force them to make trades, which tends to exacerbate the move one way or the other. Right. So you're going to see things, listeners in the news, things like it's a short covering rally. It's where the market is moving up and people have positions that are betting the market's going to go down and their margin desks are forcing them to buy back into the market. And so, you know, you're going to see these very ferocious, quick moves up and down in the market. And a lot of it is leverage coming on, leverage coming off. But in our opinion, as time goes on, the underlying fundamentals of a lot of these companies are stronger than their prices would dictate. Mm -hmm. That's not across the board. You're going to have sectors like travel, leisure, entertainment, energy. It's going to take a while for those companies in those sectors to come back where others will bounce back quicker, right? Yeah. So um, the last thing I want to make a point on before we talk about tweets and research is what I feel the market and investors are going to be focused on, Mark, over the next couple of weeks. Okay, so in my opinion, the market and the investors are going to be looking to see what Congress does for middle America. Right. I feel like the Federal Reserve is taking care of banks and corporations. We got to see what Congress is going to finally do for middle America. Right. That's very important. Second thing the market's going to be watching U.S. caseloads. Right. Is it going to be more like a South Korea or is it going to be more like in Italy? Now, I'm in the camp that we're going to be more like South Korea. And I think the market is pricing in a more dire outcome than I'm hopeful that we're going to see. So again, it's going to look at what Congress is doing for middle America. What's the U.S. caseloads? And then I could also throw out there just unemployment. We're expecting unemployment um, uh, claims to go up. And we're going to continue to watch the job market. But I am optimistic that this is going to recover, generally speaking, quicker than most people expect. Yeah. yeah. Because right now, it's hard psychologically for a lot of people to think past today, think past tomorrow. And I think as a equity investor, 
you're not investing for where that stock price is going to be a week from now. Mm -hmm. You're investing for that where it's going to be several quarters from now, several years from now. And I'm optimistic that a lot of the names that we are picking for our clients, we're optimistic on where those names are going to be over those types of time periods. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing here too, is that, you know, everyone's making or everyone's talking about how quick and how swift this sell-off is. Well, it could be just as quick back to the upside too that we have to remember we have to remember that again for everyone that you know isn't totally you know entrenched in the markets like we are that the market is forward looking so i think that we are pricing in right now the next one or two quarters that it's not going to look so pretty from an economic or numbers standpoint or a headline standpoint but then as we get into q3 and q4 as these businesses ramp back up i think you're going to begin to see people step in to buy in anticipation of that once this virus does dissipate and it doesn't have as big of a um, economic effect anymore. Now you're already, you've seen that over in East Asia, Mark. So I would argue that uh, Asia is about three to four weeks ahead of us in the evolution of the spread of COVID-19. And you're already seeing, and I'll talk about it in a little bit, life returned to normal there. And people didn't see that three, four weeks ago. So I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. So moving on to uh, the tweets, uh, articles, and research from the week that caught our eye. And this was a really good one from Brian Portnoy on uh, March 9th. And this was after the markets finished down approximately 7.5% that day, Matt. All right. So Brian tweeted, Today was the price of admission for those wanting to grow their assets at a rate well in excess of inflation. There is no getting around it. The ride has a cost, and at times it is very expensive. So this is a thing that I want to get across to listeners. And I'm not trying to be harsh, but we have to live through periods like this to enjoy the increased returns in the stock market over time. That's right. There's no free lunch on this. Right. You can't get high single digit rates of return, low double digit rate of return averages long term and not come without some sort of benefit cost. Exactly. And what's the benefit cost with this? Well, this one's negative. It's a volatility. And you're going to have times of of liquidity crunches where price discovery is not working normal like we discussed earlier. And it's not fun. But if you look back at all these prior sell offs. The reasons for the sell-offs were different, but the outcomes weren't at the end. Yeah. And we've talked about that in prior podcasts. Yeah. It's a matter of how long it's going to take for it to recover. Right. And I'm in the camp. This is not going to be a multi-year recovery. I think with what the Fed's doing is right for banks and corporations. I'm seeing promising steps for what Congress is doing for middle America. So the next step is control this case count. Let's do it properly. Let's get America back working. And I am optimistic that this is going to recover quicker than a lot of the media is playing this out to be. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just, you know, you just have to remember in times like these that, you know, over the last 10 years, people wouldn't be where they are today with their investment accounts without investing in the stock market. If you were just in a money market or a CD, we're not in the days anymore where that stuff's paying you know, double digits and a percentage of the yield. And why I'm confident a lot of that money's gonna come back into stocks that came out of it is interest rates are so low. So what, people are gonna get out of an investment vehicle that longer term 
averages those high single digit, low double digits, and they're gonna they're gonna say I'm I'm okay with one percent for U.S. Treasury for ten years. I don't see it. Yeah. So that money will go back into stocks, and I bet you a lot of people are gonna end up buying back in at higher prices. Right. Well, that's the conundrum that we hear people talking about right now. People want to get out and go to cash and. Okay, that's fine. But then the next decision you have to make is when do I get back in? Right. So if you make the decision to go to cash, number one, that's one market timing aspect that you have to be right on. Then the second one you have to be right on is getting back in. When do you decide to get back in? And it's hard to time the market once, but to be perfectly timing it twice, I would say it's almost impossible to do. So, and I know that. Right now, it hurts a lot to, t- to talk about this stuff. But, you know, just from talking with clients and talking to just my peers, you know, people have told me, yeah, I just never got back in or I didn't get back in until after 2008 until 2015. And they missed a significant amount of the upside. And now here we are back in that same position. We're having that same conversation. I just encourage people to look back at 2008 or 2000 to 2001 and say, hey, I'm not going to make this mistake again. And I know that it, it, it hurts to think about that sometimes, but hey, we're in it right now. We've talked about it in the past what had happened. And as far as I'm concerned, you need to make adjustments to make sure that you do not miss the, the snapback to the upside, whether that's 12 months down the row or 24 months down the row. Um, I think you have to have exposure you know, to, to get some of that market return that we're going to see in, you know, whatever time period it comes. I think you perfectly articulated that Mark. And I I think listeners need to hear that. Yeah. And the only comment I want to make is this. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is doing nothing. Yep. That's the, that's a big thing. Everyone constantly feels like they need to be making adjustments to stuff, but, um, you know, a lot of the times people need to be turning off the TV and, and not looking at things. And I think this is one of those times where you have to stay the course um, if you have a plan and, you know, it, it hurts and it's not fun to watch this play out right now. But I think over the long term, we're going to look back on this situation and be like, I'm happy that, you know, we sat on our hands and we didn't make any rash decisions. Yes, sir. So. My next data point uh, was from MFS. So this was on March 16th. And MFS uh, said this, in all 11 bear markets that suffered at least a 20% decline in the S&P 500 index in the last 75 years, which was 1945 to 2020, before last week's 12th bear market, the stock market eventually recovered 100% of the sustained loss i.e. going above the previous bull market high. The average time the stock market took to recover back to a new high closing price from the low point in the downturn was 24 months. Right, So that's from all the worst of the worst bear markets over the past 11 to all of the more mild bear markets over the past 11 bear markets. And the average has been 24 months. Yep. And again, I'm in the camp. It's my opinion uh, that it's going to be on the lower end of the average. Mm -hmm. Just my personal opinion. Yeah, no. And and I think what, you know, that that number could be kind of confusing to a lot of people because people are like, okay, it's going to, you know, take 24 months for me to make my money back. You know, we have to be in the market during those average 24 months to get back to all time highs. Yeah. I mean, you miss 
three or four of those big days where it's up nine percent right you're not going to make it back and i know i don't have the complete stats on this and maybe something we can talk about later in a couple of weeks but i remember reading something that if you missed the best you know five or best 10 days in the market over the past like decade your return would be drops significantly dramatically than I can if dig, you were in the market. I can dig that up for the next podcast yeah, or two. Yeah, so we'll try to, to find those numbers exactly for people. But uh, to be able to recover to those new highs, you have to be in the market to get that recovery. I want to see if I can reach out to Bespoke and see if they can do it. I think other people that subscribe to their research yeah. would be interested. They're yeah. pretty good at that raw research. I'm going to see what they say. I'll be good. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about quick before I turn it back to you, Matt, for a couple things. I read a blog post from our friend Ashby Daniels um, on the Retirement Field Guide, his blog, um, titled, Your Portfolio Was Built for This. And this was on back on March 2nd, so a couple of weeks back, but I just wanted to go through a few points that he made because I thought it was a, a good article, and we will link to this in the show notes. So he starts out by saying, sell, sell, sell. This is the typical response recommended by the media right now as they go about trying to make some sense out of things that are unable to be understood, forecasted, or responded to. It's what they do. People sell because they don't know what they own. They believe they own some portion of the future earnings of an erratic slot machine. When back here in reality, they own portions of some of the best managed, most well-capitalized businesses in the entire world. Are we to believe that over the span of one week that the value of these businesses actually dropped 15%? And again, this was back on March 2nd, and yep. they've come down much more than this. But I think this is the thing eventually over the next month, two months, three months, the market is going to eventually get back to paying attention to. But when peer, when fear and panic sets in, you know, all that stuff goes out the window. So people are throwing out everything without regard to what they're selling. That's right. Another good point that Ashby makes is this. People who are selling at this moment may feel some level of comfort that they have stopped the bleeding. What they haven't done is determine when they will get back in. And again, this is something that we just talked about. This is what sparked my interest about having, having to be right twice in, in deciding when to get out and to get back in. So um, for people who want to go check that out, there's a lot more content in this blog post, but I didn't want to spend too much time. Just wanted to talk about some of the things that I agreed with Ashby about. But again, if you want to read the full article, this is linked on our show notes page. Excellent, Mark. I like that. So um, <clears throat> I got one real big data point that, um, you know, if you turn on the news, you're, you're not going to hear this. OK, so this was from uh, March 17th. So currently it's the morning of March 19th and we're recording the podcast here. So just two days ago, FedEx, that's a reputable, I think, source. Um, they have uh, a lot of operations over in, uh, in China. So what they say on this topic, I think, carries a lot of weight for me. And FedEx was saying that China is getting back to work. They say that, and I quote, demand rebounded more than expected with 65 to 70% of small businesses operating again and 90 to 95% of large manufacturers operating again, end quote. So why are we not hearing about this in the mainstream news? Well, it provides vision that this too will pass. Right. And you're seeing society in Asia 
even though there are some new cases, they have it under control. And in my perspective, it's only a matter of time for that starts to hit Europe and then the US. And you start to see these exponential growth curves on these caseloads start to bottom out, I mean, top out, I should say, mm -hmm. and start to level off. So I think this is a great data point that is not being discussed enough. And I want listeners to hear there is another side to these to the data that you are hearing in the news. Yeah, and I think actually through this whole process that uh, I've found, at least personally, that Twitter has been a better news source for me. I would agree with that than watching the Mark. news. Now, now, you and I use it a lot, but it's been great. It has been, but this, but I think people need to realize that this situation is no different than any other time period where the media just reports on the negative things because that's what gets their ratings up. That's what gets more people to tune in if they come out and throw out all these scary stats. That's no different than what the media has been doing for the past decade. It's just they're doing it on this topic now. Oh, yeah. Right. They're all in. So I, I encourage people to go check out other news sources like Twitter because you do have people reporting on the other side of the coin, like you just mentioned. Now, will I still argue that most of the Twitter news is negative? Yeah. But at least you get bits and pieces from people of some positivity. Well, um, well said. You know, I think now is a great time for someone to start a, a media company that reports on positive news because I think people need that in their life. I would agree. Um, you know, I think that these past two weeks have been tough and it's been it's been hard to sit through and hard to watch and hard for people to swallow. And I feel for everyone that's affected by this. Um, so I just think it'd be cool if, you know, someone, a startup, you know, was out there and providing positive news out there all the time. Maybe there's something out there that I don't know about, but I think now's oh, the time. I agree. For, I love this. for a company like that. Yeah. Yeah. And listeners, if you know of a, of such a source, please forward please it on to us. Forward it on to us. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That's all I got. I'll send it back to you for the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah. So I think this probably won't be as a shock to most people on what this topic is going to be about. But this came from a Wall Street Journal article uh, that's titled, Is it time to refinance your mortgage? And this was by Julia Carpenter. So I wanted to share this article this week because even during times of financial stress and uncertainty, there's still things people can do to increase their financial position or make their financial lives better. Focus on what you can control. Exactly. And refinancing your mortgage is one of those steps, not for all people, but for a lot of people, um, especially with interest rates as low as they are, over the long term, if people can take advantage of it now, it could save people a significant amount of money over a 15 or 30 year period. So we did link to this article also in our show notes, but this might be one from the Wall Street Journal that you might need a subscription to. Okay. Um, so if you can't click on it, I think they they run deals all the time to get like 30 days for a dollar or something if people want to go through this, but I'm going to try to cover most of it here. Got it. So back on Sunday... Obviously, we talked about the Federal Reserve cut its benchmark rate to a range between 0% and 0.25%. Um, so Julia writes, mortgage rates are expected to fall along with those yields. The 30-year fixed rate mortgage averaged 3.29% during the week of March 5th, according to Freddie Mac. And the 15-year fixed rate mortgage dropped to 2.79%. And these numbers, Matt are before the Fed cut rates 
to zero to 0.25 percent. So I got to believe that they're lower now. I would agree. Um, so, I mean, these are these are rates that people have not seen in a long, oh, long time God. for mortgages. And what's you know, a lot of in a lot of people's cases, what makes up a large majority of their monthly household bills, the mortgage, payment. Their mortgage payment. So uh, going back to the article, this opens up a whole new world of refinancing for mortgage borrowers, says Guy Sakala, a publisher of Inside Mortgage Finance and Industry Research Group. We're talking mortgage rates at 3.25%, if not below 3% in the next few weeks. And I just heard someone on another podcast said that he just refinanced to a 15-year mortgage and he got a rate below 3%. Wow. Wow. If everything everything stays the same, and frankly, that would be a once in a lifetime refinancing opportunity. I would agree. However, I think this is important to note too, Matt. For those considering a refi now, first look at the difference or spread between the current rate and the rate in the market. Then look at costs as refinancing means paying significant closing costs, including title insurance and an appraisal which can often amount to a few thousand dollars. And I think this is really good to bring up because a lot of people don't take these extra costs into consideration when they're thinking about refinancing. Uh, The article goes on to say, if the potential saving from a lower rate mortgage doesn't make up for those costs, it may not make sense to refinance just yet. The old rule of thumb used to be two years. Um, if you can pay it back within two years and you expect to be in the house for five years, then why not do it now? Okay. Okay. Um, so another person that commented in this article, Lori Droster, the branch director at RBC Wealth Management in Madison, Wisconsin, suggests considering a refinance if there's a difference somewhere between one half a percentage point, i.e. 0.5% okay. or 1%. She said it's easier for people to understand the potential saving when they make it personal. Calculate how refinancing could affect monthly mortgage payments rather than simply looking at the percentage difference and examining examining it in an abstract way. That's a good point. When they can see it in dollars and say, I'm paying $1,500 a month right now for my mortgage and 1% lower is down to $1,200 a month. That's $300 a month. And multiply that by 12 months. That's a significant saving for a lot of people. Yes, it is. Um, So this kind of helps put it in perspective on how people can go about figuring out if now is a good time to refinance their mortgage. So, you know, I think that if you have cash and you can cover the closing costs and you're going to make up for those costs within a two year time period, I think it's a no brainer for people to look into it at least right now. I, I, I think it's a great topic you brought up. Yeah. So, and again, and again, focus on what you can control. You can control focus on what you can control. Yeah. Right now you can't control what the market's going to do on every given, any given day. Nope. Back to what you can control on a day-to-day basis. And this is something that you can. So consider it. Love it. Um, so we have a question. First time we have a question in a long time, by the way. So I, I want to send a shout out to Brendan to thank him for sending a question. And he's been listening the past few weeks, he told me. So uh, Brendan's question is this, Matt. Okay. So I have a few brokerage accounts that I have been throwing funds to since graduating, i.e. Robinhood, Acorns, Fundraise, Coinbase, etc. 
Recently, my employer has notified the whole firm that all personal brokerage accounts must be with a broker on the list of designated brokers. Some of my brokers are either not on the compliant broker list or in the process of being added, i.e. Robinhood. This leaves me with the responsibility to move all my funds from my non-compliant brokers to a compliant listed broker by the end of this year. With that said, what advice would you offer to execute this transfer of funds to get a different compliant broker and avoid fees and or penalties to the best extent possible? Additionally, what brokers would you suggest for a guy like myself to get this done? I'll take this one, Mark, if that's okay. Yeah. So um, for listeners, um, the way this works is most of the major brokerage firms are connected via something called an ACATS system, okay? That stands for Automated Customer Account Transfer Service. And think of it as wiring money from one bank to another, but in this example, instead of wiring just cash, you're gonna be wiring over 10 shares of Amazon, 50 shares of XYZ mutual fund, and it comes over with what you held at the prior firm. Now, here's the catch. That firm or that custodian has to pay to be a part of this central clearing automated transfer system called ACATS. And a lot of the emerging new players, i.e. say a Robinhood, may or may not be a part of this system yet. So I wanna give him an example of a firm that I know back in the day wasn't and that was Capital One. So Capital One had a brokerage unit, Mark, but they didn't pay to be a part of the ACAT system. And we had a client that wanted to move what they held there and move it to us. So our custodian behind the scenes is National Financial Services. That's the independent side of uh, Fidelity, okay? So because they weren't a part of the ACAT system, it took over 30 days to get these securities moved over. Because what happens is it goes in a queue at either, in this example, Capital One, and then they have to manually DTC the shares over, and it's a very lengthy process. So going back to the direct question, you gotta find out if the custodian is a part of the ACAT system. If it is, wherever you want the money to go to, they should have an a automated transfer form that you complete and you uh, sign that and submit it back with a copy of the statement. From the old broker. From the old broker. And then um, if it's processed that day, five to seven business days later, those securities will show up in that account. If they're not eligible for the ACAT system, you're going to have to work with the old broker to get those DTC'd to the new custodian and just start earlier in the year because that process could take 30 or 60 days with some of those custodians that are not a part of the ACAT system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So people don't, 
I think a, a big misconception is if people want to move brokers, they have to sell everything and move it to cash and then move it over. But that's not the case. Nope. So you can do an account transfer. So when you go and open up a new account at the new broker, they'll have a form that you fill out and you fill out it. So everything comes over in kind. So you don't have to worry about selling anything. No tax consequences if it's an after-tax brokerage account. Right. So that's that's the big thing. Now, one can make an argument that if you do it now, you can you know do some tax la- loss harvesting and then just move the cash over. But I think that's a person on person basis. Sure, sure, sure. Um, if you do need to take some losses this year. But yeah, um, for the majority of people, you can just transfer everything in kind. That way you don't have to sell anything and everything comes over into the new account as it was in the old account. Um, now there's a lot of different brokers out there and with everyone being so competitive these days, um, Brendan, there should not be any fees or penalties to transfer these accounts. Um, most of these, uh, brokers and discount brokers now do not have any account minimums and, uh, most of them have wiped away their trading costs, their trading commissions too. So you shouldn't have a problem there. Yep. And that's pretty industry standard. Now, as we talked about a couple of months ago, that happened back in the fall, um, of, of 2019. So you shouldn't have any problems there. So any of the major broker players I think are fine. Um, just make sure that they're on that compliant list, but it isn't, it isn't as, uh, bad of a daunting process as people make it out to be. However, it could be a little tricky if you do have the Coinbases of the world and Robin Hoods who aren't a, po- a part of that uh, automatic transfer system. Yep. So. All right, Matt. So anything else we want to say before signing off? This has been um a crazy week. I mean, I, I don't remember a, a time like this. I think yesterday was probably, you know, one of the toughest days we've had in, in the industry. So I want to let people know that, you know, I feel for everyone out there who is going through tough times and praying for people that um, need help and trying to do what I can in, in the community to keep um, small businesses going and, and that type of thing. I think that's extremely important for all communities to do. Um, but, you know, times like this are not fun. But again, to repeat what we talked about earlier, we need to go through times in the market like this to enjoy those higher rates of return as compared to just keeping your money in cash. I think you articulated it perfect. Um, I'll just add to that, Mark, that, you know, listeners, this will pass. And and again, I know it's hard to look past today or even, um, you know, sometimes in the market the next hour. But just know that if you could just look out, not in days, but weeks and quarters, this will get better, in my opinion. And I would just recommend that uh, if you have any questions or concerns, we have an open door policy. Feel free to give us a call. Um, but we'll be back next week with another recording. We'll continue to update listeners on what we're seeing, Mark. And, and um, I would just use our podcast as, you know, a bright spot or a voice of reason in a, in a, in a very uh, fluid and ever-changing uh, environment right now. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want people to get the the opinion that, you know, we're being biased and trying to make things look more rosy than they are. We're just trying to provide both sides of it, right? We understand that things are not good right now. And we fully expect cases of this to rise. Death toll is going to rise. Yep. We're not belittling that nope. at all. But we just want to provide some other data that you might not necessarily be hearing if you're just turning on the news at six o'clock at night. Um, so, yeah. 
If that's everything, Matt, then I think we'll kind of wrap it up. We're uh, right around the 42 minute mark here. So we'll Sounds let listeners great. And listeners, send us, send us your questions. Love to yeah, talk please. about it. Yeah, seriously. I know a lot of people have questions during times like this. So um, you can reach out to me on the social media sites or you can send me an email at mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com if there's anything specific uh, that you want Matt and I to discuss on this show, because most likely, if you are thinking about the question, there are other people out there with the same question. So um, with that being said, thanks for tuning in. Have a safe and healthy and happy weekend, and we will be back next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.